0: Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful that you've joined us. My guest on today's show, Jimmy S., found the active alcoholic's pot of gold. After a difficult adolescence, prison sentence, and series of dead-end jobs, Jimmy was hired by a California winery where he worked for over 20 years This dream job not only allowed him to drink on the job, but actually required it. His job as a wine salesman necessitated intimate knowledge of every bottle he sold and daily drinking with customers. Thus, Jimmy's longtime alcoholism and drug abuse was fueled by the demands of his job. Then came his downward spiral, replete with divorces, physical decline, drunk driving, and mental issues. Fortunately, as the bottom approached, he had a moment of clarity, found AA, and has sustained sobriety since that time. Ironically, when he got sober and informed his employer, he was fired for not agreeing to drink on the job. As a former functional alcoholic, this was another gift he could not ignore. Over his more than 20 years of sobriety, Jimmy has parlayed that experience into a strong program centered in constant service to the fellowship and helping people in his own community. Though I only met Jimmy about a year ago on Zoom, we formed an instant bond based on a shared love for Alcoholics Anonymous and our mutual willingness to help others. I've been fascinated by his story and feel like I've known him for years. I think you'll feel that way, too, over the next hour as you listen to this AA recovery interview with my AA brother, Jimmy
1: S. Hi, I'm Jimmy. I'm an alcoholic.
0: Hi, Jimmy. That's exactly right. I knew you were because you're here today with me. You and I met. We were part of the American invasion of the English Zoom AA meetings. That's where you and I met, was at a London-based Zoom meeting. And it was so cool to meet a fellow American in that meeting. And you and I have gotten to be regulars there. So how has Zoom kind of changed your life?
1: Zoom for me has opened up the whole world to me. Has it? It's bumped my sobriety
0: uh-huh.
1: and my involvement with Alcoholics Anonymous uh-huh. up about three hundred percent. Really, for a variety of reasons. One, because where where I live, there were only a couple of live meetings. Mm-hmm. Seeing the same people over and over again. Yeah, it's it stopped feeling like it was about sobriety, and it was more like more like a little club yeah <laughs> I that's the best way to put it i need a little more varied recovery yeah. and a little more mix mm-hmm. of new and old and everything in between yeah i was going to meetings but attending mentally kind of perfunctory yeah i just sort of showed up and trying to get involved, but not feeling uh, the connection yeah. that I had felt previously in other places where i would lived. So
0: yeah. Zoom
1: gave me the opportunity to, like you said, start start branching out. And yeah. I've got to be honest, I, I think I like it better than a lot of meetings.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know what I like better is than not having to get in my car and drive because I don't know how many tens of thousands of miles I put on a year going to six or seven meetings a week. But all of them are across town. So we're talking a half hour there, a half hour back. But I know what you're talking about with those smaller meetings. They get so small that you can tell the other guy's story for him. It's always nice to be able to get into some new meetings. That's what I found with Zoom, too. It's kept everything fresher. And we're really blessed to be able to have that technology. So you're an alcoholic. What's your sobriety date and how long have you been sober?
1: My sobriety date is October 19, 1999. Twenty-one years. I'm coming up on twenty-two if I don't get drunk between now and October. I didn't get here until uh, I was uh, almost fifty.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, for me, I guess I was lucky in that it stuck mm-hmm. for whatever reason the first time. Yeah, and I think it really primarily was because I alcohol stopped working.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So when the, you weren't getting the relief and you're still drinking like a fish, you start going, well, this isn't this isn't working out, Yeah, <laughs> you know, for a variety of reasons. Yeah.
0: You quit because alcohol stopped working. When did it start working for you? I mean, when did you first encounter alcohol in your life?
1: The first time I had a drink, I snuck a couple of warm beers out of my uh, grandmother and my uncle's house, and uh, it tasted <laughs> terrible. Yeah. But I drank one and felt pretty good so i figured two would be yeah. better that was the first time and i didn't drink much yet that nobody in my immediate family really? drank there was no alcohol in our hmm. house hmm. i guess you know, because it was mysterious and as a kid you know you you, you know after eventually you go over to a friend's house and you know they do that horrible thing where you raid the parents right. cabinet and pour a little bit of everything into a glass uh-huh. I didn't drink that and then laugh and have a
0: great time and yeah. then throw
1: up <laughs> and be horribly sick and yeah, confused. Yeah, I, I get that. You know, I, I did that a bunch of
0: times. Yeah, and you couldn't wait to do it again, <laughs> I'll bet, huh?
1: But, uh, yeah, you know, it, it, uh, there was no deterrent mm-hmm. there, let's put it that way.
0: Mm-hmm. No obstacles in the way of uh, drinking whenever you wanted.
1: Well, if yeah, if you could figure out a way to get to alcohol, I was happy to drink it, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. And of course, the time period when I was, you know, was doing this was I was in, my, in the 60s, you know, and in some ways, uh, for a while there, it was more about, uh, you know, smoking pot and taking drugs mm-hmm. than alcohol, because in some ways those things were easier to get. I didn't have to go to a store and get somebody yeah. to buy it for
2: yeah. you know I, mean?
1: I could buy it from a guy on the yeah. corner. So, you know, I had all that involvement as uh-huh. well, which I think... You know, it's just, I don't think it's a gateway mm-hmm. like they talk about going the other sure. way. But I think it predisposed me to try things to alter the way that I felt and to change my my being and my perception, because I always felt I always felt a little squirrely yeah. like, uh, you know, I I wanted something, but I didn't know what I wanted.
0: Yeah. Is this from the time you were a kid, you were feeling that way or how, when did when did that feeling kind of come in?
1: You know, when I was really, you know, in young, probably, you know, up till about fourth or fifth Mm -hmm. grade, you know, I was trying to be normal. Mm -hmm. I craved Mm -hmm. attention, you know, and I found that I could get more attention by being bad than I could by being Mm -hmm. good. And for some reason, I didn't mind the consequences Mm -hmm. once they were over. You know, and when you were bad, getting in trouble. You know, once the, once, the, once the shit died down, it was like, <laughs> pretty cool. So people could at least look at me like, oh, he's, he's reckless or he's fearless. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I always had this sort of dysmorphic uh, sense of myself. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I joined the gang when I was mm-hmm. 12. Uh, I was the only member <laughs> uh, because I I didn't like yeah. meetings and we always did what yeah, I wanted. Yeah. And I literally would sneak out the house every night, put my leather jacket on, grab some smokes, and go out into town. And in my mind, I was James Dean in the Wild ones. Mm-hmm. But the reality was, I looked like Ralphie from a Christmas <laughs> Story. I was a chubby little kid with glasses. Yeah. yeah. So you know that disconnect uh, was always there from the very beginning—the difference between perception and reality—and always trying to be something that I wasn't trying to be something that I thought I wanted Mm -hmm. to be or something I needed to Mm. be. You know, and I developed those skills. I rode with them for quite a while.
0: Were they attractive to other people or did they keep people away from you? I mean, that being a bad guy, there's always guys who want to follow that guy and being the the funny, clowny guy like I was when I was a kid. There were always kids wanting me to be the guy who got into trouble, but it was always funny. And I, there were always people around to support me in that. Where did you fall in that group?
1: I was still, for, for a long time, uh, really, really a loner, up until um, I got out of junior mm-hmm. high. But I, I had a couple of mm-hmm. friends. I would rather spend time by myself. Really? Yeah, You know, I mean, I was in the, I was in the Cub Scouts, and that was kind of mm-hmm. fun. And then I became a Boy Scout. I got kicked out of the Boy Scouts because I took a group of scouts, young scouts, out on a what was supposed to be a three-hour hike and came back about fifteen hours later, and looking like the lost (laughs) patrol. And uh, you know, we had found some beer and cigarettes. Anyway, just it was suggested to me that I might want to not mm-hmm. come back.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, the reality of it was I didn't want to be yeah, here Yeah, anyway. I get it. It wasn't working mm-hmm. for me. You know, I had always been out there running around by myself, doing whatever I wanted to do, whatever I wanted to do.
0: Now, when you were by yourself, were you drinking or, or smoking pot or doing any of that other stuff? Or were those activities you did more with other people?
1: You know, I started smoking pot. You know, I actually started smoking cigarettes mm-hmm. before I smoked anything. When I went to junior high, I, mean, I guess it was seventh mm-hmm. grade, there we took a bus. The bus it was about a two-mile uh-huh. ride, and I would walk that two miles for the thirty seconds that the bus went by, and I they could see me smoking a cigarette, looking like a badass. Yeah. You know what I mean? That thirty seconds of that little performance, who he is he <laughs> smoking? You know, and then I'd have to walk two miles to school every day. Somehow made yeah. sense. I, I think about it now and I go, you know, but you're an idiot. <laughs> you know, uh, there was a little bit of drinking in those days, but I was just more out misbehaving. Yeah. You know, I had trouble with the juvenile hall and I had trouble uh, where I live. There were alleys yeah. and you could get on these fences and walk these alleys for, for blocks and blocks. Mm-hmm. And I could see into everybody's backyard mm-hmm. and into mm-hmm. their house. So, you know, I'd be checking out, well, what's going on in your house? <laughs> Cause I wasn't interested in what was going on yeah, in my house. Yeah. What's happening in your house? Why is it different? And then of course those sort of things morphed to, well, it's nice to look in your house and see your stuff. Maybe I'd be better if I was in your house yeah. with your stuff, you know? And of course that was, uh, then the logical conclusion was, well, I'm already here. i must about to take some <laughs> yeah, of your stuff. Yeah. So I got a lot of trouble. And in fact, we had to move because I uh, I robbed the vice principal of the high school's house oh um, and got uh-huh. caught. And my parents felt that it would be a great idea if I didn't go to that high school.
0: That sounds like a pretty uh, drastic consequence. But what were the consequences of that beyond just moving? Did you get into trouble with the law or kicked out of school? What was going on there?
1: I, you know, I had a lot of suspensions. Uh-huh. I had all those things yeah. going on. And I, got, yeah, I went to court and was on juvenile probation for mm-hmm. a while. My father used to take me by the uh, juvenile facility, like a little mini yeah. prison with you know, barbed wire and stuff. And he would threaten me. He says, you know, you're going to wind up there. And instead of being terrified, I was trying to peek over the wall. I was mm-hmm. curious.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, you know, I actually found out. So I was sentenced to the youth authority for a period mm-hmm. of time. And then when I got out, you know, I went into high mm-hmm. school. And, and, you know, when I got out of the youth authority, I'd lost all that baby mm-hmm. weight. And, you know, I've been lifting weights. So suddenly, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't that fat little kid mm-hmm. anymore, mm-hmm. you know? I was uh, a 14 year old with a really horrible, shitty attitude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, and then off to high school, we went, <laughs> you know? I sold drugs in high school and I was a cheerleader. I was covering my base. Mm. Started drinking pretty uh-huh. regularly uh-huh. then in combination with drugs, you know, mostly beer, uh, not so much hard liquor, but mostly beer. And of course, in those days we were all drinking these really horrible fortified wines oh, yeah. that were super sweet, super mm-hmm. cheap. And, you know, a pagan pink and red mountain, you know, you can buy a gallon right. for like a dollar uh-huh. uh-huh. or something stupid. And, uh, you know, so all through high school, you know, that was the pattern, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, you know getting drunk on the weekends and then showing up at school drunk and, you know, on high yeah. and
0: what kind of feelings were you chasing with that? Did you have a particular way you wanted to feel when you were drinking or smoking dope?
1: I liked the feeling, the freedom mm-hmm. that I felt because it was a new experience and it was really mm-hmm. different and it felt unique mm-hmm. and it felt like it was only mm-hmm. mine. I liked the idea that it was my
0: experience mm-hmm.
1: that I wasn't trying to, being told to experience mm, something
0: mm-hmm.
1: does that make any sense
0: it does were your friends uh at the time complicit in that behavior or were you all hanging together or were you on the
1: fringe because i i would i had split my attention between the you know the good uh-huh. goods and the, the bady bads you know what i mean i had a little with both everything huh. so it just allowed me it gave me a confidence huh. i didn't have problems with either yeah. one and it allowed me to feel like I had skills that I probably right. didn't have, but it made me feel like I could navigate in those kind of situations. Mm. And that problem with that was, is that it encourages you to take more risks. Sure. And, you know, and of course it was a lot easier to take more risks on the, on the bad side than the good yeah. side. Yeah. When I finally like, managed to graduate after high school, most people, go uh into the service or go to college I went to prison
0: How did you end up in prison
1: Well I got arrested
0: Yeah well, I get that but <laughs> what, what,
1: what were you doing <laughs> I got caught I I got, I, I was selling uh, I was selling drugs Yeah I was approached cuz I had been selling drugs for a couple mm-hmm. of years and I was approached to do mm-hmm. something and I said sure I could do that and then with based on the theory that I figure out how to mm-hmm. do it and I figured out how to do it. And it turned out that the whole thing was a setup mm. uh, because back in those days, uh, drugs were, were looked on, you know, like a cap. Sure. You know, we were, you know, mm-hmm. it was mm-hmm. severe. Were
0: these the harder, the harder
1: drugs? LSD. I liked the, uh, the mind. Uh-huh. I, I didn't like the downer drugs. I like things, you know, I like things that, me up or make me see shit. So you get
0: caught by the police or the undercover, whatever. What were your options at that point? Did you did they give you any options of jail and or some other option?
1: No, there was no talk of diversion or anything else huh. to do. So I mean, I got the lawyer that I could afford and uh, took a uh-huh. plea deal. Plea deal was five mm. to life. In those days, they didn't give determinate sentences. They were indeterminate. Oh so they could keep you as long as uh-huh, they wanted, uh-huh. and off I went. Turned 19, 20, and 21, like the song uh-huh. says. And uh, after uh four years, yeah, I got out. And you know, the interesting thing was, you know, that we made booze in jail, yeah, we were making this, this god awful pruno, this horrible uh-huh. hooch with fruit juice uh-huh. and stuff. But uh, you know, we would drink it because you know, for me. I look at that period. It was like the first time in my life that I had a chance to reflect back and look at my life and see what it is that was going on and what I wanted, what I was going to Mm -hmm. do. And just, you kind of plucked out of your life and put on hold.
0: What did you see when you were looking back on that, Jimmy?
1: When I wanted to get out, I had this vision that life was going to be different. I was not going to go back to Mm -hmm. East LA. Um, You know, I was going to get a place in the country you know, with a little porch mm. and I uh, get, a, get a girlfriend who, you know, sings like Joni Mitchell <laughs> of Bakes Bread. And I just sit on the porch and she'd sing and bake and I'd play mm. guitar and it'd be mm. wonderful. The problem is, is like, a lot of people, I, I don't, I only think about that part. I don't go, well, first I should get a job <laughs> yeah. and save my money so that I can accomplish it. I just want to skip right to the part where I'm sitting on the porch. There's no, how do you get yeah. there in my mind? Well, you know what happened uh-huh. when I got out? It, it was different for about a half an hour. Okay. And then I was at the liquor store.
0: Did you get back involved with uh, with what caused your incarceration to begin with, with the drugs, or did you stay away? How did you handle that?
1: I did get involved with drugs, but of course, at that time, the drugs had changed. Okay. It was mostly marijuana, and then five, six years later, when, when cocaine hit, I was definitely mm. a candidate mm. for cocaine. That, that drug was, you know, they they had me in mind. And, you know, and I didn't put up much of a fight.
0: While you were in prison for those four years, was anything offered to you that could be considered enriching for a a better life coming out?
1: Uh, I was just in jail until the last three months. And I got transferred to a program that let me go to the local junior college for uh, three hours a day. Mm -hmm. There was about, about a dozen of us we were a kind of an mm-hmm. experimental program, and um, you know we'd come on the we'd come on the prison bus, they would drop us off, and of course sure. we were a bit of an oddity, but it was great to be around yeah. people again, you know, and yeah, especially around
0: girls. <laughs> Did that get you started wanting to go back to school, or when you got out, you just left that behind?
1: It made yeah. me want to go to school, but more than anything, I wanted to make money. And I finally just took what I would learned and, and I, found a, mm-hmm. I found a small job, you know, working mm-hmm. in a print shop, doing some of the stuff that mm-hmm. I had learned in college. And uh, that gave me a chance to earn a living. Mm-hmm. I was getting like a hundred mm-hmm. bucks from the state and a hundred bucks a month doesn't go very far.
0: Now, were you living on your own at the time or up with family?
1: No, I I, uh-huh. I had left the family uh, the day after I graduated from high school. I had and got involved in politics uh, at the time too, and I got arrested on TV. And uh, my my parents sitting at home watching the news, and they're, they're they're dragging me across the street, and uh, that was it for for uh-huh. for me in the house. My mother was fine, but my father he didn't know what to do. Was that anti-war? Yeah.
0: Okay, so you, you were part of that whole thing.
1: Yes, and this was at uh, Cal State Fullerton. I went to several colleges. Oh,
0: okay. I just never well, went to class. How'd that work out for you? Or need I ask?
1: <laughs> it turned out it worked out pretty well. In what way? And serendipitously, uh, unbeknownst to me, I uh, met a guy mm-hmm. at USC that uh, was a teacher there. We became really good friends, a fellow by mm-hmm. the name of Leo Buscalia. And I don't know if you're familiar with Leo, but
0: he wrote the books about loving, right?
1: Yeah, and it's something about Leo just—it was one of the first time I had ever met a person in my life that you sensed something special and mm-hmm. and wonderful mm-hmm. about—not suspect, not yeah, you know, that—it's just something about this guy. And, you know, Leo uh, and Mm. I became good friends and, um, you know, I went to his class Mm -hmm. for all the wrong reasons, but, you know, he was, Leo was instrumental. I managed to get a parole hearing Mm -hmm. and Leo wrote an impassioned letter to the parole board about me and was really instrumental in uh, getting me released early because I was released earlier than that five year minimum sentence. So, you know, things were already happening for me that were yeah. helping me, but I I didn't realize or sense that things were going my way.
0: Jimmy, did you get a sense of a, a divine intercedence going on there that something bigger than you was making that whole thing happen with Leo and with getting paroled early, or did you just pass it off as just nothing special?
1: Yeah, I passed it off. You know, one of the nice things about the gift of sobriety is it's given me an opportunity to Mm -hmm. look back at those things and see the things that i so i wouldn't even say callous i just i disregarded without any Mm -hmm. thought or feeling at all uh no sense of appreciation or anything it's just always on to the next thing. yeah never going boy i dodged a bullet there Mm. wasn't this fortunate you know, you slap yourself on the back and figure, you know, I mean I you know, I got the golden boy. So of course
2: hmm. things are going hmm.
1: my way. You don't know, realize that there's all these other forces, not to mention that there's yeah. all these other people that are trying to to help me. I never I never saw that. Did
0: you sense that your life was starting to turn around or about to be turning around when you had this relationship with this man who sounds like he was kind of a mentor to you or at least a, a friend?
1: No, you know, because I, I saw Leo uh-huh. a, before I went to prison. Hmm. I never saw him hmm. after that. Um, he wrote the letter. I didn't even find out about the letter until uh, hmm. about a year after that. And uh, Leo and I just never reconnected. I stayed up in Northern California and Leo was still down here. So we we never connected after that.
0: Hmm. So he was one of those anonymous angels out there, wasn't he?
1: I think that's a great way of putting it. I think that's a great way of putting it.
0: So we're talking about you in your early 20s, and you didn't come into AA until you're 50.
1: Yep. Yeah, I was 48, I think. Yeah.
0: Okay, so what did the intervening 28 years look like?
1: A lot of different jobs, a lot of different uh, schemes. Uh, mm-hmm. I played music. And so I I got involved in music and Mm -hmm. played in bands and and did those things and wrote music Mm -hmm. and and did that. I had a sign shop for a few years I see. and I liked that because I've always been kind of artistic. I was trying to be your basic artist musician. And um, the problem was, is that Mm -hmm. I I needed to support my alcohol and my drug habit. I needed Mm -hmm. a steady income. So Mm -hmm. I kept trying to find jobs. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, you know, I sold swimming pools. I, uh, that was horrible. I worked at a car dealership. Right. <laughs> that was terrible. The best part was after, yeah. you know, you know, every night you'd pick up a different car and go to the bar. <laughs> that was the best part about that job. And um, uh-huh. I had gotten to a point where I really needed a job, but I didn't know what to do. And I had a friend uh-huh. of mine who owned a winery. So I asked him and I got a job working at the winery. Uh, working is mm-hmm. what they call a cellar rat. You, you do all the shitty mm-hmm. jobs about making wine, you know, so you move the hoses and mm-hmm. you wash out the tanks and you punch down grapes. And, and during harvest, you know, you're on a forklift with the crusher and all mm-hmm. that stuff. And I did that for probably three or four years. And I liked that because I worked by my myself lots of times, you know, and I'd be in a big old winery in the bath to be hmm. flying around. Wow. And I'd be doing my job and I'd have the stereo blast and, and drinking wine and having a great old time. You know, one day uh-huh. I was working the crush. It was about 110 and I was covered in grape juice and sticky and wet, and tired and miserable. And just then their broker walked out onto <laughs> the uh, the crush pad where we're working. And as I recall, when he walked out, there were like little rays of light oh, shining from him and he was clean huh. and he just huh. had a nice lunch and he had half mm. a heat on for drinking wine. And I went. Screw this! I want to be that guy. I don't mm-hmm. want to be this guy. So I went to the owner and I begged mm-hmm. him every day for like six weeks. Let me go sell wine. No. Let me go sell wine. No. And finally, he said, "You can go out two days a week." So I did that.
0: And mm-hmm.
1: uh, you know, I went to a, I went to a place, and as little as I knew, I went to a restaurant at lunchtime to sell him wine. Smart idea. <laughs> and the, yeah. And the guy goes, why don't you come back after lunch? And I did. And, you know, the guy spent a lot of time with me and, um, and taught yeah. me a lot about what was going on. And I realized it was one of those things that you hear your brain go, if you can shut up and listen, you learn how to do it. <laughs> and it turned out I was really good at it because if you look at my life, yeah. my primary job skills were drinking and bullshitting. Yeah. You know, and what is sales? But and essentially Mm -hmm, mm bullshitting. So this was a job that was made Mm -hmm. for me. Uh, We drank wine all day, you drank wine with customers, you know, I always had plenty of samples. And uh, I I spent 20 years doing that until uh, the alcohol really stopped working for me. And I started, uh, things started to change, you know, yeah, my world started to get smaller. Mm -mm. And I didn't, i didn't see it happen yeah and i know that now from what i've heard about alcoholism but it was getting Mm -hmm. harder and harder to get out of the house Mm -hmm. and all this time this 20 years i mean i was having blackouts and i was losing Mm -hmm. the car and stuff and uh you know making an idiot out of myself Mm -hmm. but i always managed to keep the job i managed to get thrown out of the Mm -hmm. bands because Mm -hmm. i was unemployable anymore and my relationships have all mm. gone, had all gone to hell. I got married. Uh, and that poor woman, you know, trying to keep up with my drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a wonder she didn't die. So, but, you know, I just kept drinking and I didn't sit. That time I was married, uh-huh. actually with her for four years. We were uh-huh. married five uh-huh. years. It was destined for failure. Yeah, I got married because I thought I should get married. Oh, it's time. And I cheated on her the night before the wedding. So what kind of husband does that? That's the kind of guy I was. And the worst part about it is is that is that how it is that I didn't feel bad. I thought I was slick. I thought I was smart. I thought I was I thought I was really I, you know, really had this game and I was really, you know, controlling my own destiny and making stuff happen. And I look back now and I realize, mm-hmm. oh, my God. Eh.
0: Yeah. what Was that the alcohol addled part of your personality that was showing up at that point? Or did, did you still think you didn't have a problem?
1: I, I didn't think I had a problem.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, it's it's the usual things. You know, there are certain consequences to certain actions, you know. For some mm-hmm. reason, mm-hmm. It's, you know, I had the ability to look at hangovers and that stuff mm-hmm. as is part of the territory, uh, they didn't wow. scare me. You know what I mean? I knew I was going to feel like shit sooner or later, and and you knew how to deal with it. You know, and, and it's like <laughs> I just kept doing that and, and taking the consequences. Mm-hmm. I I'd suffered from one serious problem that I think might have helped, and I don't know if that's true or not. But all those years, I never got a DUI. Not one. I was going to ask
0: you about that. It sounds to me like you were drinking every single day. I was wondering, how could someone do that?
1: I was drinking every day. Yeah. I had a set of wine glasses for the car, for Christ's sake. I I drank every day, uh, and I look back at this, and I explain it to people now that, you know, it doesn't mean that I was a fabulous driver. It just meant that I just didn't get caught. It's as simple as that. It's just like, you know, being in prison and you go, what are you in for? <laughs> and, and you tell them and then somebody says, isn't it great? You're only here for that and not all the other things that you've done. You know, if I would been in prison for all of the stuff I'd done, I'd still be there. So, you know, it was one of those things. that.
0: Well, it's amazing you're alive. And- yeah.
1: that's, that's one of the funniest things, you know, uh-huh. about this program is that people who had not hmm. seen me, In a long time who had met me and then seen me sober. That was generally the first thing out of their mouth. Holy shit, you're alive.
0: How did that all affect your physical body? That's a lot of years of drinking wine every single day. And uh, what did it do to to you physically? Or was that not an issue?
1: You know, it really didn't start catching up to me until I probably was about... Mm, mm after I hit 40, you know, cause mm-hmm. I had always spent a lot of time in the gym and, you know, I was still doing those things. Um, but the last couple of years, everything just sort mm-hmm. of ex- exacerbated and mm-hmm. I, uh, I put on a ton of weight and, and of course, you know, I was having blackouts. So mm-hmm. I, I didn't know anything about alcohol. Mm-hmm. I never knew anybody mm-hmm. went to AA. None of my friends got sober. My friends either died or moved. Yeah. <laughs> and I was having blackouts. So you go to the doctor and you go, I'm forgetting shit.
2: Uh-huh.
1: He goes, oh, my God, we better run a brain scan, you know. Uh-huh. And I got the shakes. And it's like, oh, my God, do you drink? Well, I drink a little. <laughs> Does the shake go away when you drink? No. Well, you must have Parkinson's. <laughs> oh, so, I, I mean, I'm having all these tests. I got brain tests. You know, I'm doing all this shit. Just like it says when we were uh, how it works, all the things we try. Sure. That's like a checklist for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I got into exercise. I went to a health farm. I did all of that stuff. Well, I finally decided that I needed to do something because I was, I just had this empty feeling yeah. that the world was slowly turning on mm. me, and I wasn't getting any feedback or, or I wasn't feeling any love for many of my friends. Mm. I was feeling like I was there for everybody and nobody was there for me. Yeah. So I went to the winery and I begged them to send me to this wellness program. Uh-huh. And I went to this program for 10 days and became vegan. Uh-huh. And uh, you know, and uh, I I lost a lot of weight and I stayed sober for almost three months. Wow. And uh, you know, it was like, oh, this is this is fabulous. Hmm. And of course, you know, like it always says, sooner or later something comes up. And uh, a friend of mine was getting married. I didn't want to go to the wedding because I knew everybody was going to be drinking. Uh I didn't want to be the only guy not drinking. So... In a shot of brilliance, I stayed home and got drunk myself.
0: Yeah, yeah, that that that. <laughs> Still got
1: drunk, I just didn't go to the wedding. Yeah, that,
0: that's that sounds uh, about right. Uh, now, when all this is going on and you're drinking, obviously, you're working for a winery. It, I, I wouldn't think that they would be the most apt to want to call somebody on their drinking. But did any of your friends or colleagues or anybody else suggest to you that maybe your big problem was the drinking? Sounds like the docs. We're trying to find ways to let you off the hook with brain scans and Parkinson's. But did anybody ever face you down on that?
1: Yeah. Only one relationship. Mm-hmm. I had a relationship uh, with a woman that I had known in years before. Uh-huh. And um, she wound up moving in with me with her son. Mm-hmm. And then she wound up moving out mm-hmm. because of my drinking. Mm-hmm. That was the first time and the only time that I've ever had anybody say there's something there. Or that I had an ache like that what I was doing, maybe, you know, when, when you're talking to her and you look over the shoulder and you see her eight-year-old son, mm-hmm. it's still, I still glossed it over. I still just kept going, you know, that there was something else going on or that maybe she should help me or something. Because I, I didn't ha- I didn't have any skills with this stuff. I didn't know how to deal with this stuff. Mm-hmm. And you know, and mm-hmm. it wasn't until towards the end when I finally did what it you know what got me to AA. Mm-hmm. And you know, because I had toyed around with it, I'd driven by the fellowship where I lived in Vallejo mm-hmm. and seen those guys out there. I'm not a hobo. Yep. I still got a hey, I got a house. I got a car. Sure, it's in the shop, but you know, I've right. got two cars, so I can drive yeah. the other one. You know, I'm not a, I'm not mm-hmm. an alcoholic. I'm not a bum. Alcoholic was a right to me. Right. I didn't know I didn't know what I know now.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it, it mm. kept me out there longer. And the other thing was is that I had managed to get off my cocaine habit. Mm. And the fact that I had done that and replaced it with drinking didn't connect. You know, in my mind I had found the secret to getting off getting cocaine out of my life because I, I, yeah. I, I it had run its course and I was sick of it. I okay. guess I just couldn't do it anymore. So I just huh. had to tough that out and make that happen. So that gave me huh. that false sense that I could handle this. I can handle this shit. And the problem I was having was, why can't I handle this shit? I still couldn't uh-huh. figure that out. Yeah. You know, because I, I didn't know what I know now.
0: Yeah. How long were you doing the cocaine?
1: I had a, probably 10 years of uh, getting rid of everything I owned.
0: Hmm. To support your cocaine habit. Yeah. So you you kick yeah. the cocaine with the idea that the booze is helping you do that?
1: No, I was still drinking and not seeing alcohol as a problem. You know, it's like when you read the early stories, yeah, you, uh-huh, you know, they sure. talk about, oh, "I'm not drinking, I'm only having beer." <laughs> yeah, right. You know, it, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a what? Well, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not shooting heroin. I'm just starting cocaine. I'm only drinking tequila.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> and 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 it 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 makes perfect sense.
0: We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, check out my Big Book Podcast, the complete unabridged audio version of the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. The Big Book Podcast is an engaging, word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of all 11 chapters and original stories, including more than 50 rare stories not published in the third or fourth editions. The Big Book Podcast was read by Howard L., who received no compensation for this vital service work. Listen to all 85 episodes anytime, any place. Search for Big Book Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Or listen on BigBookPodcast.com. You'll know you've arrived when you see our logo, a first edition Big Book wearing headphones. And we're back. So where does the downward slide begin for you till age 48? How many years prior to that did the wheels start to wiggle and start about ready to fall off?
1: You know, it really was compressed. It was probably only about a year when when things suddenly started. Um, you know, I'd always been the golden boy at work, uh-huh. and I got my first bad review, and I couldn't understand mm. uh, why, what had happened. People were saying I had changed, and I know what had happened. Mm-hmm. I just didn't connect it. Mm. I was drinking. Mm-hmm. I was drinking. I was getting up in the morning yeah. and drinking. And it it got to the point where, and I'll, I'll, I'll share this with you. It's not very pleasant, uh-huh. but there towards the end, when I would come to, I'd have to go to the kitchen sink and I would chug a bottle of wine, a 750 mm. wine. I'd chug that so I could throw it up so I could chug the second one to get to stay down. Oh, man. That's how I was drinking. That's how I was starting what we were calling my day. And it did not seem, I didn't see anything wrong with huh. it. I, I, I just, it just did nothing seem wrong about wow. it. What gradually started to happen was I started to get these feelings and this fear. When I first went to prison, I used to have a nightmare uh-huh. that I would wake up and I would be back in court and it hadn't started. Mm. And there was that little period where I couldn't differentiate between whether I was dreaming or sleeping. Mm -hmm. Is this real? Am I dreaming Mm -hmm. this? And I started to have this dream where I woke up in jail and not knowing why I was there. Mm -hmm. And having the guard say, don't you know, you killed a family of three. Mm -hmm. I was terrified I was gonna hurt Mm -hmm. Mm someone. That was always in the back of my mind because every time I got in that car those last few months, Something happened, and I wouldn't know what happened. Mm. The last time that that happened, I got in the car. I don't know where I was going, but I hit something mm. and I don't know what I hit. Mm. But I do remember the guy flashing his lights in my rear view mirror. Mm-hmm. And I know that I'm in trouble and I got to get out of there. Mm. So I took off in the car
2: mm-hmm.
1: and we had a little mini car mm. around my neighborhood until I lost. Him. And then I remember turning up the radio. And um getting comfortable and thinking I'm hips looking cool again. And I remember seeing these two young kids standing on the street corner. And I pulled up to the stop sign and I looked over mm-hmm. and you know, try to be cool, you know, hey, sup. And one little kid looks at me and he says, Hey mister, you have four flat tires. Oh, and um I <laughs> I drove home and for some crazy reason I got the phone book and opened up the phone book to alcohol. Uh-huh. And there was a little bitty ad under alcoholism that said, need a miracle. Hmm. And I went, yeah. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Now I know now at the hindsight, why I needed a miracle. Sure. uh, One, I was incapable of doing it for myself, Mm -hmm. but two, I'm lazy. Sure. I don't want to do any work. I want to be tapped on the shoulder with a fairy wand and make me better. Mm. Solve this alcohol problem. Boom. Yeah. Bam. Yeah. I need a miracle. Yeah. That's a quick fix. Sure. So I didn't know anything about alcoholism. I didn't know anything about AA. Mm-hmm. But I called, and you're going to love this, I called a woman that I met at the wellness mm-hmm. program and convinced her that I needed to go to rehab because that's all I knew. Right. Anybody that had a problem with drugs and alcohol went to yeah. rehab. Well, obviously, that's what I yes. need. Now, I never knew anybody who went to rehab, but that that sounds good. I need to be rehabbed, yeah, right. you know. That's where they take the old yeah. parts out and put new ones yeah. in and yeah. make you all better yeah. and patch up the uh-huh. ass. I called her up, and uh, she belongs to that program where it's nobody's fault. Right. And so uh, she drove. After she convinced her husband to drive down to take me and pour me into this rehab center. Hmm. And uh, they dumped me off there. I had a couple of drinks on the mm-hmm. way. And then I detoxed for like three days. Wow! And I remember waking up occasionally and hearing the two guys, because they have somebody watch uh-huh, you, sure, so that you don't have a seizure. Uh-huh. And they're going, "What do we do if you wake up?" <laughs> I don't know. You run for help, and I'll try to keep here. <laughs> and uh, on that on that third day, shaking like a leaf, I went to my first twelve step. Wow! Wow! Yeah. It was an NA meeting, uh-huh. and I saw the steps for the first time in uh-huh. my blurry eyes. And after the meeting, this this little heroin addict came up to me and gave me a big hug and his phone number, and uh, told me to keep coming back and that he loved me. Uh-huh. And I knew right then and there that I'd made a terrible mistake. Yeah, and I had to get the hell out of there because I'm not joining some damn cult.
0: Yeah, yeah. So this is how long into the into the treatment program did that happen?
1: This uh this is a fourth day. And and I'm, man, this is a this is the fourth time in you know in what 35, 40 years that I have not been drunk or high, wow. and I am I'm I can barely walk. I'm shaking like a leaf. I can hardly hold a cup of coffee. But there was a counselor there who was a pretty intuitive guy, and uh, I know now that he was he was just one of yeah. us. But you you know he, he knew how to. He knew how to get to me. Yeah. And and he made it pretty clear that I could leave anytime I want. Mm-hmm. Uh, they weren't going to drive mm-hmm. me. I was out in the middle of nowhere. Right. I sure as hell wasn't going to walk. Mm-hmm. But I could leave, you know. But I knew as much as I was fighting that I wanted to go, that all I was going back to was the same thing. I see. More of the same. Yeah. yeah. So I decided to stay. Huh. And, and then he said something to me that, he says, listen, you've been faking it your whole life. And of course I was incensed. Mm -hmm. Anybody would accuse me of not having integrity. Even though I had no integrity and I (laughs) have been faking it my whole life. He goes, why don't you just fake it till you make it? I go, what the hell are you talking about? Why don't you act as if? Act as if what? Act like you believe this stuff. And I go, how how disingenuous is that? He goes, what have you got to lose? Hmm. And And the reality of it was is that I had had a chance to sort of talk to some people and look at my life and see that there there was definitely something wrong. Mm-hmm.
2: Sure. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah.
1: There was definitely something wrong. Yeah. So, and then something miraculous happened. Mm-hmm. I went to a meeting, I think it was at fifth day and a guy stood up there who I had seen um, a movie of and some TV footage of He He was a newscast uh-huh. up in the Bay area. Yeah. And had gotten drunk on the air. Oh, uh-huh. And then they were interviewing him in his car six months later, yeah. and you know, and he got fat right. and lost <laughs> everything, you know, and identified with this yeah. guy. So here we are, we're at the meeting this this AA meeting on uh, like the sixth day, and, and here's this guy standing in front of me. Huh. And he says, When I cut when I would start my day, I'd grab a bottle of wine and I'd chug it over the sink. So I could throw it up, so I could get the second one, and I'm <laughs> like, "Holy God. crap! I'd never heard anybody who drank like that." I did. Uh, suddenly, so I uh, like a little switch kicked off wow. and then I started listening. Here he was; he had gotten a job, he had a cute girlfriend. Um, you know, he was getting a five-year chip. Mm. Wow! And he sounded so positive. And most important to me, he didn't sound like I expected him to sound. Yeah. He wasn't swinging a Bible or dancing with snakes because I saw that God stuff and it hit me like a ton of bricks, yeah. you know, that old God stuff that every, you know, yeah, yeah. you know, that you would have got from a Victorian preacher. Mm-hmm, sure. And, uh, but here this guy was, he seemed halfway normal. And I, and I was excited and that was the first time that I had a little inkling that it might work. Wow! So I went to my room that night and I got down on my knees and I said, help me.
2: Hmm.
1: That's the only prayer I said. And I don't know where it went. Hmm. I don't care where it went. I didn't know where I thought it was going. Mm -hmm. I just said it. And I guess I believed it different than before because the next day, nothing happened. Yeah until I went to bed. And just before I went to bed, I realized I had not thinking about thought about having a drink all day.
0: That's amazing.
1: The first time that I can remember not thinking about having a drink or taking a drug or changing the way I feel all day.
0: That's amazing.
1: And the next thing you know, it was two days. And to be honest, I haven't had a drink since before that, but I haven't had the craving since I said that that prayer. Yeah. The obsession uh, was lifted from me that very moment. Mm. Mm. So I just did what they told me to. They, they told me to act like I believed all this. Yeah. Shit. And you know, if I had had the slightest idea of something else to do, yeah. I would have do, uh, done it, but I, God bless me, I was so out of gas. Yeah. Yeah. The hook was set and I just followed along. So it
0: sounds like you found AA relatively early in the treatment program that you were in. Yeah. And then you got what you needed to get from AA that got you to the point where you were on your knees asking for some help. Did you get the sense at any point that maybe you were jumping the gun on the treatment program and maybe it was the treatment program that was going to get you sober and not so much AA?
1: No, you know, I got the feeling that I've got the sense and I still have that sense now that I don't think if I had gone to treatment, I would have got the program. Really, I think it was the ability for the people there to explain to me what I was hearing uh, and what was going uh-huh. on while it was happening, yeah. and learning about it—that is the thing that doesn't happen as directly and as individually as it did for me then. Mm. Because if I had questions, I had things I was bumping up against. But more important, this guy—he knew what I was going through, and he knew how he knew how to reach. Sure. He knew how to piss me off. Mm-hmm. He knew how to challenge mm-hmm. me. And he also instilled in me the fact that if I wanted to do this, that the only way this was going to work is if I did this.
0: Yeah.
1: Thing. And when people would relapse or leave that program, I used to cheer. Mm. Not because I was happy to see them go. It just meant that I was still here. Yeah. Because they always tell you, you know what? Well, three quarters of you people are not yeah, going right. to make it. And every time somebody went down, I'm like, hey, not me. Yeah. Not me, man. I'm gonna keep going. I was terrified I was gonna drink again.
0: How long were you at the treatment center?
1: Thirty days, man. It's been dry. Just enough to be convinced.
0: Okay. So were you going to meetings on the outside or were these all interior meetings where people were coming in from group?
1: Yeah, they were they had they had meetings there every day, in addition to the classes and the stuff. So there was always an AA or an NA meeting there. Right. Um, brought in from outside. So, you know, you got to see how the meeting works, but you got to understand the process and all those things as you're going through working steps one, two, and three. It saved me from trying to decipher what was up there because I struggled with some of that stuff. My counselor gave me the NA workbook at the time Uh because I had a drug problem, Uh you know, too. I mean, I was an equal opportunity Uh user. I went to both fellowships for sure. a while, but I answered the NA workbook like it was alcohol. Mm-hmm. And by answering those questions, I wasn't left to my own device or my own imagination about how to answer those questions and participate in my sobriety. Mm-hmm. They forced me to answer and find a way to make my life fit the question. Mm-hmm. You know, it was always, if you don't think you this applies to you, find a way to make it apply yeah. to you. Yeah. And because of the way that worked for me, uh-huh. that gave me the ability to understand what I was doing, why I was doing it, and to, and to do it correctly. Right. And that continued when I went to my sponsor, when I got out of the recovery, mm-hmm. after I finally took a sponsor. That took a while, too.
0: So they're directing you out the door of the the treatment center immediately to AA. Did you go immediately? Oh yeah. Okay. So you went immediately and what w- what were your first meetings like out there?
1: They they were great. I was excited to be there. Uh-huh. You know, what I mean, I wanted to learn, I wanted to meet people mm-hmm. uh and of course I knew all about AA, but you know, I was excited to be there. And you know, there it wasn't that mentality uh "Why don't you shut up? And listen." It was like, "Well, thank you. We're glad you're here." Uh-huh. And um, I got a commitment right off the bat. Oh, that's cool. And I kept trying to get a sponsor. I'd raised my hand every meeting I went says, My name's Jimmy. I need a sponsor. Yeah. And it took me six months to get somebody to say yes.
0: Okay. So if somebody finally said yes, and were you attempting to do any of the steps prior to that or?
1: No, I wasn't. I was just going to meetings. Yeah. And uh, reading the book, and I had gotten a recovery Bible too. Uh-huh. So I was trying to do that end of it, trying to figure out the higher power I thing. Get you know I got a guy who said I'll be your temporary sponsor, uh-huh. and uh, he was my sponsor till he till he passed away. Mm. So uh, you know he, he stayed temporary, but. You know, at least we we got through the steps and allowed me to you know keep doing what it is that I've been doing ever since.
0: Did you ever feel when you were getting out of the treatment center? I've known people over the years who have slipped, and looking back on their experience with treatment centers, they get the sense that once they get it figured out in there, that maybe they've got it totally figured out, and they get out and they'll go to a few meetings, and then they kind of drift away. What was it about AA that kept you wanting to come back to those meetings in the early days?
1: This is going to sound rather egotistical, uh-huh. but I kept asking mm-hmm. that, you know, I said, listen, this is great. We can all can stay sober here. Anybody can be a monk at a monastery. Right. <laughs> can you get me back to my life? Is this stuff going to work out there? Cause I wasn't sure it was going to work. Mm-hmm. I was sure it was going to work, you know, while I'm around here, I'm in an A meeting, but how do I take this out to work? Mm. How do I translate this to my job? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and again, There's another one of those little miracles. Mm -hmm. Uh, I went to work after I got out of rehab and the work was very supportive. You know, when I went to rehab, they said, just take care of yourself Mm -hmm. and we'll keep paying you. You do what you need to do. And, and, um, you know, and and we'll talk when you get back. And I went back to the winery and and sat down and told them, you know, that I was back and I felt really good what I had done and, and that I, you know, I was committed to not drinking anymore. And I was here to go to work and um, they fired me huh. because they said, if you can't drink, you can't work here. <laughs> I go, that doesn't make any sense. That's the stupidest thing I had ever heard of in my life. A
0: requirement for the job,
1: huh? <laughs> yeah. They, well, they were confessed to that. Yeah. They fired me. I mean, they gave me six months severance. Mm. You know, that's generous. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been there 10 years. Yeah. I mean, looking back, I mean, it wasn't legal, but it was the best thing. So now I had nothing to do but work on my sobriety. I had nothing to do but go to meetings. Huh. I, my bills were paid. I, you know, all I get—I I just had this chance to focus on myself. And, uh, you know, I did that for about close to eight, nine months.
0: Was AA in the wineries' point of view, were they the enemy? Or did they just not like the fact that you weren't going to be drinking while you were on the job?
1: They were convinced that the only way that I could sell the wine mm. is if I could... Talk about the wine from a first person. Okay, perspective. Okay,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: Not realizing that I said the same bullshit every time, right. regardless. Okay. <laughs> what it yeah. was. It's, it's pros. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, I get it.
1: <laughs> it's like Siskel and Ebert giving you the same review for every, every movie.
0: <laughs> so this is within your first year. You get your sponsor at six months. Did he get you started on the steps right away? And how long did it take you to work through the fourth and fifth and then the eighth and ninth until you became of service?
1: You know, we got everything done. We were probably done eight months. I was done before I had that first year. That's
0: great. That's great.
1: And I I procrastinated a little bit on that fifth step. The the problem was I was trying to be so thorough. And because of my age, I had a lot of shit that I had tucked away. And I would think about something that had happened. Mm -hmm. And then it would remind me of something else. Sure. And something else and something. It was the proverbial peel in the onion. You know, one thing always led to another, yeah. and I was convinced that if I wasn't thorough, mm-hmm. that it wouldn't work. Because that's what they told me. It's like, okay, I'm, if I'm going to believe this shit, I'm going to believe right. it. Right? Because if it doesn't work and I've been thorough, then I can I can at least complain about that.
0: Yeah, I get that.
1: And there were some things on my list that I was going to take to my grave. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There are some things that I had done in my life uh, of being a, a reprobate and a criminal. Sure that I was not proud of Mm -hmm. and they're not things that I would share with anybody, Mm -hmm. but I shared it with that man Mm -hmm. and, and with God, it took so much of the shame away. Yeah, You know, I, and just, it was such a, such a burden lift.
0: It sounds like it.
1: And with the understanding that those were just the things that I did. Sure. They weren't who I was.
0: I'm glad to hear you say it in that way, because it's about what we did, not not who we are right now, because we're different now than we were in the first. OK, so you, you worked your your steps and you worked with a sponsor, let's say, to about a year and a half or so until you had all the steps done.
1: Yeah. And we kept in contact uh, for, for many years. I mean, you know, because he was local uh-huh. and, uh, you know, I started getting sponsees mm-hmm. and, and you know we do that that thing i got sponsees before i finished the study. really because we had people from rehab calling me mm-hmm. and it's like well okay i'll try you know and uh, you know i learned a couple of valuable lessons mm. in those early days you know yeah that it's not my job to keep them sober yeah you know it's just my job to help them Go through the steps.
0: It's hard not to feel bad when a guy that you're working with doesn't get it. Uh, I mean, I know that the sign of success in sponsorship is when the sponsor stays sober, but it's still hard not to take it upon yourself that what I'm maybe I could have done something else, but that's an illusion.
1: But my first bossie cleared that up for me. I saw him, and then I, I lost track of him for three months. Yeah, and then I happened to bump into him. While he was sitting in his car drinking and of course mm-hmm. i asked him well what happened <laughs> and he looked at me he says i'm an alcoholic what do you think happened And I, I went, oh that's a, oh god how did i forget that
0: that's the right answer to that question that's
1: that was the perfect lesson yeah you know, he solved that problem
0: isn't that amazing we're talking about your first couple of years uh, fast forward, say, the first 10 or even 15 years, what were some of the major milestones in your sobriety that you can look back on and say, thank God I was in AA, thank God I was sober, or you've you've talked about some miracles that have happened for you. Can, can you speak about a few of those uh, types of events in the succeeding years?
1: Yeah, I think I didn't know what I was going to do for a living because uh-huh. I had been in the wine business 20 plus years. What yeah. the hell am I going to do? I'm, you know, uh, uh, I'm almost 50. You know, I'm not exactly. And I got a call from a guy who had given me one of my first jobs in the wine building.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He had hired me with my criminal record. Mm-hmm. And how he knew I needed a job, I don't know. But he called me up and he says, I got a, I got a job.
2: Mm.
1: And, I, and I said, I got to tell you something. He goes, what is it this time? <laughs> and I go, I don't drink. And he goes, well, I never hired you for your liver. <laughs> I thought that was remarkably insightful. Mm. So after a lot of soul searching and and uh, a lot of prayer and meditation, I went back to work in the wine business. Mm. And uh, I've, I've been working in the wine business ever since. I've still work for a winery
0: wow.
1: today. Wow. Um, you know, if, if there isn't an accomplishment to work around something that ruled your life, like yeah. alcohol did and still be able to be part of it. And it's given me the opportunity to help other people in this industry because yeah. I, people notice things. And, uh-huh. and I'm not shy about telling people, you know, if they ask why I don't drink. And huh. so that's been one huge miracle. It's wow. allowed me to continue a career that I thought I had no business being in. And I thought it was over. The yes. other thing is that it's taught me to deal with, and become realistic about mm-hmm. dealing with the pain and the grief in my life. You know, um, I got married again.
2: Yeah.
1: And um, my second wife was in the program mm-hmm. and we had a wonderful relationship. Mm-hmm. When I was traveling for my work, I was mm-hmm. on the road, you know, 200 days a year. Yeah. And uh, going to meetings all over the country and, mm-hmm. and doing what I do. And then I'd come home and it'd be fabulous and I went from traveling all the time to not traveling at all. Yeah. And we grew apart and we got an amicable divorce because we Uh realized we just sort of moved, morphed into roommates. Yeah. She eventually relapsed. Oh no. And you know, I, I was able to be there for her grown daughters Uh and try to be there for her. She eventually drank herself to death. Oh, sorry. Um, You know, alcohol took her and, um, she's not running anymore. You know, I'm just convinced that there was something in her past that she had never been able to get out. Now, I don't Mm. know why I feel that way. I just, I had that sense, you know, and you know, I was able to deal with that and um, you know, I've lost several of my good close friends to alcohol. Mm -hmm. The hardest one was one of my good musician friends who drank himself to death on purpose. And I remember Um, seeing him the day before he died, and I remember (laughs) crying. And he said, don't be sorry for me. I did this to myself. hmm. And I tried to explain to him, that's why I'm crying. You know what I mean? He couldn't find anything at all in the world to tether himself here. Hmm. No reason at all to stick around. Not for his kids or his music. Super talented, great guy. Everybody loved him. But he was, he just, fuck it, I'm going to die. And he did. And, you know, hmm. it reminds me how grateful I am. The real big one is, you know, what? Uh, we've moved down to the desert here uh-huh. uh, a few years ago. And I have that little piece of land uh-huh. that I used to dream about in prison. Yeah. I got a wife with a fabulous voice who cooks.
0: <laughs> That's great.
1: There's music coming from the house. Uh huh. And one day I was sitting there going, that dream came true. Huh. That dream came true. I didn't see it happening. I just did the next right thing. I did what was in front of me and, uh, you know, try to become a worker among workers mm. and, you know, try to be a maximum service to the world and mm-hmm. pass this message on. Yeah. You know, if you, when you look at that, that's, those are the things that move me.
0: Yeah. Sounds like you stay pretty much in the middle of the program too. People, that I've known who have slipped after getting the kind of comfort that you're talking about usually do so because something about that, whatever they've achieved or whatever they've been able to accomplish in their lives professionally or in relationships or financially start to become their higher powers, or they start to take credit for that which they should not be taking credit for. How did you manage to stay responsibly humble. And I, I'm not suggesting that you're Mr. Humility, but how did you stay away from that kind of mindset? I didn't. Really? Okay.
1: <laughs> you know, I had a couple, I had a period about 10 years in where yeah. I was focused on work and uh-huh. I, I was going to meetings, but I wasn't, I, I was going, but I wasn't going, if you know what I mean. I'm at the meeting, right. but I'm you know, thinking about something else. I have always had a very volatile temper. Mm-hmm. Uh, even as a little kid, I overreact, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, in second grade, I put a kid in the hospital, mm. that temper, that shortness started to come out and it came out of work. Mm. I handled a situation like drunk Jimmy would have handled it. You know, almost threw one of our better customers down the stairwell.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: So everybody knew that there was something up. I knew there uh-huh. was something out because I didn't see myself getting that squarely. But when I did, I knew exactly what it was. But I finally saw it that ugly glare of what was happening. And, uh, you know, so I went to the meetings and I knew what we were taught to do. I went in and told on myself. I yeah. told everybody what had happened. And, that uh, yeah, excuse me, I'm not Mr. AA or whatever mm-hmm. you think. You know, this is what yeah. I'm going through and this is what uh-huh. happened. And uh-huh. I threw myself back into my program. Wow. And that's buoyed me to get back to where I need to be. Just like Zoom did. Zoom invigorated yeah. my sobriety because with you only have a couple of meetings a week to choose from. Yeah. This, like you said, we you know, we're, I was hungry for more. Yeah. And I yeah. wanted different, you know, that yeah. fresh meat. I hate to use that phrase, but <laughs> I want to hear some new stories from yeah. some new people. I love the people I got sober with, but I'd mm-hmm. like to meet some new people. So yeah, I started I going that. to meetings all over the Country and all over the world, mm-hmm. and settled on a few that I really felt comfortable, and dropped mm-hmm. some others. Yeah, uh, and yeah. you know the combination of that and um, the other work that I do at the the local marine base, you mm-hmm. know, has just given me the opportunity to be around different kinds of sobriety, and then be around no sobriety.
0: Yeah, and be of service in both places.
1: Yeah, I, I when I go my meetings at the marine base. You're not at that meeting unless somebody (laughs) told you you have to go to this meeting. This is not a lot of happy guys. So
0: you don't have a willing group of people. (laughs) We do not because, you know. It's like going to those prison meetings, right?
1: (laughs) They're young. They're all full of piss and vinegar. They can't believe this is an unfortunate mistake.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So it gives me the chance to, at the very least, if I Mm can't educate them about their alcoholism mm-hmm. i can educate them about alcoholism because you know they're going to marry one right their kid's going to be one or they might have a father one so it just gives me a chance to really be at a basic level to explain how these things work and how the program works and i enjoy that because to me that's the key to it If you can't explain, you can't give the guy the book like they did forty years ago, go here, read this, then come back when you're done with the steps. Sure. That's great. Left your own device, maybe you could do that. But I think the way that we work now with more Mm -hmm. direct contact, people asking questions, sponsors. And even newcomer meetings where they explain some of this stuff. You don't know when you're supposed to raise your hand, who to talk to, what to do. It's like being dropped into a third year's Chinese class. And they go, you'll catch up. What? No,
0: it is an easier and softer program than it was even 33 years ago when I came in or 20 when you came in. I'm so glad when you stop and think about it, Jimmy, you and I are just maybe three generations into this thing. And that still blows my mind that my dad was a teenager when Bill Wilson was starting uh, AA. And I'm thinking I'm second generation, you know, I'm thinking, wow. But it also reminds me to stay to stay grateful and to stay humble and to stay appreciative of people. People like you. I mean, this has been so marvelous for you to take the time and do this. Everybody I've interviewed so far has been an enlightening uh, experience for me, and everybody I've talked to who's listened to the interviews have said it's nothing but helpful and it's nothing but good stuff. Again, I wanna, I wanna thank you for doing this, and and uh, I love you. You're you're a beautiful man, and. I'm looking forward to going to many, many more meetings with you, man. We're friends now. We got to do that, right?
1: Howard, you know, I enjoy you. I can listen to those dulcet tones. (laughs) Dulcet tones. Oh, (laughs) no.
0: Well, Jimmy, I'm going to let you fly, brother. Thank you so much again for doing this, my friend.
1: Absolutely. Thanks again, Howard. Love you.
0: Well, my friends, that's it for AA Recovery Interviews. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, please share it with your fellow AAs, sponsees, friends, loved ones, and anyone else seeking a rich and meaningful listening experience. Show them how to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and other podcast providers. If you really liked it, I'd be most grateful if you can give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help others find us. Visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, to get in touch with Alcoholics Anonymous, simply visit aa.org. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.